Thanks, Sarah, for sharing that Only God Can story. And I know there are others out there today who have Only God Can stories as well, and I encourage you to continue to share those. I'm excited to be part of this uh, special series that uh, Dustin has created to launch the new vision and the mission and the values uh, for East Point. Love the, the, just the concepts behind that uh, you know, beautiful truth that only God can. And I know last week you guys looked at Compelled by Compassion, and that's the first part of that mission statement, Compelled by Compassion as a Church. And uh, today we're going to look at Called to Unity. But appreciate what uh, Dustin's doing. I had a chance to have lunch with him uh, a couple weeks ago as we talked about this series and what God's doing here at the church. And it's just great to be able to be part of this series and I pray God continues to use it to build and develop and uh, grow this church the way God wants to. I'm just curious as we start out here, how many of you heard of what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer? You know, the old Our Father who art in heaven. Okay, most of you seem to have heard of that. I'm guessing, in my opinion, that this may be the most famous prayer of Jesus that's recorded for us in the Bible. Uh, the purpose of that prayer uh, that's found in Matthew chapter 6 was to give Jesus' disciples and us a model or example of how to pray. You know, it would help if I put my microphone on. I imagine Nick upstairs is going crazy wondering when I'm going to think about that. Hey, sorry about that. So I hope you can hear me better now. Uh, all right. Now, this is what happens when you don't do it every Sunday. So, but uh, yeah, so we want to, Jesus' prayer and, and uh, the most famous prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, was to give Jesus' disciples a model or example of how to pray. But today I want us to start by looking at another prayer that Jesus prayed that I think was really maybe his most important prayer. This prayer is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and this prayer took place when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this prayer took place less than 12 hours before Jesus' crucifixion. One of his most important prayers, Jesus prayed for his disciples, who, the, one, the 12 who had followed him uh, through his three years of ministry, and he prayed for us today as well. Listen to the words from John chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus prayed this. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, referring to the 12, but also for all who will ever believe in me because of their testimony. Jesus had us in mind when he prayed that prayer, and he was praying for us. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be protected from evil and from the evil one in John 17, 15. Jesus also prayed that his disciples would stand for truth without wavering in John 17, 17. But I want us to focus on Jesus' prayer for unity in John chapter 17, verse 21. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be united. Hear the words of Jesus' prayer for us today. Jesus prayed this, my prayer for all of them, for all of us, is that they will be one. Just as you and I are one, Father, that just as you are in me and I am in you, so they will be in us and the world will believe you sent me. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one. Jesus wants his disciples to experience the same oneness that he had with God, his Father. So we have Jesus' prayer for unity. Jesus prayed that we would be united. But next, we need to see the church's problem of disunity. Unfortunately, despite Jesus' prayer for unity, divisions and disunity have plagued the church since day one. For example, Paul, the apostle, encountered a divided church in Corinth. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing among yourselves. Stop arguing among yourselves, he says. In verse 11, Paul continues, For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your arguments. Maybe their arguments were legendary. Later in the same letter to the church in Corinth, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, he said, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. This troubled Paul greatly because this church had all kinds of issues and problems, this Corinthian church did, and the churches throughout that area at that time, they also had problems as well. They were no different. There's an old Greek mythology story that tells the story of a man named Cadmus who, while searching for his sister, came upon a dragon that blocked his path. The mythology story says that Cadmus fought and he killed this fierce dragon. The story says that he pulled out the dragon's teeth and he buried the dragon's teeth in a field. The story continues and says that the next time that Cadmus traveled that way, he was surprised to discover that every tooth he had buried had become an armed giant. And it seemed impossible to Cadmus that he could pass through that group of armed giants. So he wondered to himself how he could overcome them. And he figured he couldn't overcome them all. So then he thought of a scheme. While hiding behind a tree, Cadmus picked up a rock and he threw a stone at one of the giants. Well, the giant who had been hit thought that one of the other giants had hit him with the rock. So he hit that giant back in return. Well, the other giants began to take sides and they argued and then their arguing escalated and soon involved their weapons. And finally, the story says all the giants were drawn into the fight and before long, the giants were wounded or dead. So then Cadmus was able to pass by without any problem. I think that the church and Christians in the church often act like those giants in that Greek mythology story. When Satan sows the seeds of discord and disunity, then Christians end up fighting one another instead of focusing on sharing their faith. And the result is people's faith is destroyed or damaged and the church loses. When Christians fight each other, everybody loses. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, if instead of showing love among yourselves, you are always biting and devouring one another, Watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Nothing destroys the witness of a church like division. When Christians in the same congregation fight, when believers in the same gospel are separated from one another by denominations, it wounds the body of Christ and it negates our witness. But it seems like living in disunity is often the easiest thing to do. And I think we tend to follow the path to disunity because it's an easy path to follow. Too often we're like the little person in the tea party poem that said, I had a little tea party this afternoon at three. Twas very small, three guests in all, just I, myself, and me. Myself ate up the sandwiches while I drank the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. You see, when we see the life of faith as a solo journey, rather than a community adventure, then we really miss the point. And we fail to develop the personal spiritual maturity God wants for us because God intended, us to, intended for us to live the Christian life in the context of community with others, where iron can sharpen iron, and where, uh, where we can spur one another on to love and to good deeds. 
So we started with Jesus' prayer for unity. He prayed that we would be one. We see throughout the, the New Testament that the church had a problem of disunity. But Paul and many of the other apostles, they pleaded. They pleaded for the church to be united. The apostles knew that Jesus had prayed for unity, so they pleaded with the early church to be united. Listen to the words of Paul to the church in Ephesus, chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, always, always keep yourselves united. United in the Holy Spirit and bind yourselves together with peace. The apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. All of you should be of one mind. And going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to stop arguing among yourselves. Let there be real harmony. Real harmony. So there won't be divisions in the church. Paul says, I plead with you. I plead with you to be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. 1 Corinthians is a pastoral letter written to a spiritually troubled church. And Paul is saying that there must be unity within the church. It's important for us to realize that the like-mindedness or the one-mindedness that the apostles speak of is not same-mindedness. Unity is not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that we're going to all think alike or talk alike or all sound alike. It's not uniformity. I like how uh, preacher Kyle Eidelman, who leads Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, explains this. He said, unity in the church is much different than unity in a country club. You go to a country club and people tend to get along quite well. Why, he says. Well, it's because they have a similar lifestyle. They make a similar amount of money and they have similar interests. All these things they have in common allow them to be united. That's not the case in the church. He said the church should be a place where people who could not be any more different People who have no natural or obvious reason to associate are drawn together because of Jesus. That's just how big and great God is. It's important for us to realize that we, you don't have to be my spiritual twin to be my brother or sister in Christ. It's okay if we have different preferences of dress and different styles of music. It's okay if we come from different faith backgrounds and different religious traditions some of you like things one way and others like things another way. It's okay. The church is supposed to be the place where people who are different come together and realize that under the cross of Christ, the cross of Jesus, we can have unity. In 1 Corinthians, Paul appeals to them by that authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he strives to unite them under the cross of Christ. It's okay if we have different preferences. It's okay if we have different opinions. We can still be united because of the grace we find in Jesus. Part of the power of the cross is that it unites very different people. So unity begins when we begin to take the focus off of ourselves and we focus on Jesus. Note this. It's not that there won't be any differences in the church. It's just that there shouldn't be any divisions in the church. There must be an uncommon unity within Christ's church. And since unity is what God has called the church and Christians to, I want us to quickly explore the purpose of unity 
and the power of unity. And then we want to look at a prescription for unity. How are we going to do this? And finally, we're going to see the promise of unity. What's the purpose of unity? Why is it so important to have unity? Well, Jesus included the purpose for unity in his prayer in John chapter 17 that I read earlier. He says over and over in that prayer to God, God, let them be one. Why does Jesus emphasize oneness or unity in his prayer? You may have caught it before, but Jesus provides the answer for us, which shows us the purpose of unity. Jesus prayed this. The reason why unity is important is so they will be in us, and so the world will believe you sent me. The purpose of unity is so that those outside the church, the world, will believe that Jesus has sent that God has sent Jesus in us. The world's capacity to believe in Jesus and the gospel is dependent upon the unity of the church. Hear that again. The world's capacity to believe in Jesus and the gospel is dependent upon the unity of the church. God designed the church to be a community of believers. So it's important for us to develop the skills of cooperation Togetherness is essential not only for our individual well-being, but it's also essential for the proper functioning of the church. That's the purpose of unity. Well, let's see the power of unity. Vance Havner said this. I like this quote. He said, snowflakes, we got a lot of them out there, snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them get together, they can stop traffic. Have you experienced that? Snowflakes are frail, but if enough of them get together, they can stop traffic. We see that about every winter. But you know what? I believe people are frail too. You know, we've got to remember we're all broken, just in different ways. But when we unite as believers, we can become a powerful force for good in this world. American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said this. He said, all your strength is in union. All your danger is in discord. There's power in unity. An old man on the point of death summoned his sons around him to give them some parting advice. He ordered his servants to bring in a, a bundle of sticks, and he said to his oldest son, break it. Well, the son strained, and he strained to try to break that bundle of sticks, but with all of his efforts, he wasn't able to do so. So then one of the other sons tried, and on down the line, none of his sons were able to successfully break this bundle of sticks. So the father said, untie the bundle, and each of you take a stick. When they had done so, the father said to them, now break it. And each of them easily broke their stick. The old man said, the old father said, you see the meaning? Union gives strength. King David wrote in Psalm 133, verse 1, how wonderful it is, how pleasant when brothers and sisters live together in harmony. So what's the prescription for unity? How are we to kind of bring this about? How can we experience the unity that God has called us to? Well, I believe the prescription for unity comes straight out of the Bible. God has given us the prescription for unity. So let's hear what the path to unity that God described for us today. The first prescription for unity is to recognize who the real enemy is in life. We need to recognize who the real enemy is in life. Today, it seems very popular for people to label other people or groups or things as enemies. But when we misplace the enemy tag, it only deepens 
the divide. People who disagree with us are not our enemies. People who are not like us ethnically or nationally are not our enemies. People who vote differently or support different candidates or political parties are not our enemies. Your ex-spouse is not your enemy. Your boss or your coworker is not your enemy. Your spouse or your kids are not your enemy. People who root for Michigan are not our enemies. I know, I, that one's hard for me. Uh, but I see we've got a Michigan fan down in front. And we know it's true. We know it's true. They're not our enemies as Buckeyes. There's only one real enemy. The Bible says this, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Catch this. Be careful. Watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. There it is. Now we know. We know who our enemy is. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for some victim to devour. Who's our only enemy? The devil. Who's your only enemy? The devil. And the devil is doing everything he can to try to divide and destroy and devour our churches, our marriages, and so much more. Because that's what he does. And that's who he is. The devil is our only enemy. And the sooner we can accept that reality and stop labeling other people as our enemies, then we can begin the process of restoration and healing. And then we can find peace and unity. Remember, God places those people in our lives so we can help them know him and know that he loves them deeply. Our best defense against the devil is to stay united, to band together as believers to be the church God has called us to be because unity brings strength. It's a May 1987 edition of National Geographic that included a feature about the Arctic wolf. The author of that article described how a seven-member pack of Arctic wolves had targeted several musk oxen calves, babies, who were guarded by 11 musk oxen adults. As the wolves approached the musk oxen's quarry, the adult musk oxen bunched together in an impenetrable semicircle with their deadly rear hooves facing out so that the baby calves could remain safe inside the circle during a long standoff with their enemy, the Arctic wolf. But eventually, the story says that one of the musk oxen broke rank and the herd scattered into nervous little groups. A battle ensued and the adults finally fled into, in panic, leaving the baby calves to the mercy of their enemies, the wolves, and not a single calf survived. When believers break rank and divide rather than stay united, then the church and Christians become easy prey for our enemy, the devil. So we need to recognize who the real enemy is in life. And second, the second prescription for unity is we need to reject those who cause division. The apostle Paul warned the elders in the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts in chapter 20, verse 29, that there would be attacks. He said, I know full well that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock, which is the church. False teachers, like wolves, continue to attack the church today. And our enemy, the devil, uses these false teachers to damage and destroy the church and to devour young Christians. Paul told the church in Rome this in the book of Romans chapter 16. He said, now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out. Watch out for people who cause divisions 
and upset people's faith by teaching things that are contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving our Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and flowing words, they deceive innocent people. I want to encourage you to not get caught up in the flattery, half-truths, gossip, veiled prayer requests, misinformation, disinformation, and fake news that these dividers try to use to deceive, divide, and destroy. Don't let a divider draw you into a special after-hours meeting or keep you after a meeting to talk in the parking lot or engage you with a special confidential email or group text. The book of Titus, chapter 3, Paul gives some more advice to the church and the young Titus, who was a young minister in the faith. He says, do not get involved. Don't get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These kinds of things are useless. They're a waste of time. If anyone is causing divisions among you, give them a warning. Give them a first warning, a second warning. After that, have nothing to do with that person. For people like that have turned away from the truth. They're sinning, and they condemn themselves. I want to encourage you to reject their attempts to sow seeds of division. Fight for unity in your church here if and when that happens. Stay true to God's word. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we are all one body. We have the same spirit, and we've all been called to the same glorious future. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one God and Father who is over us all and in us all and living through us all. Stay grounded in these truths, and you will stay connected and united as the body of Christ, the church. So we need to recognize who the real enemy is. We need to reject those who try to divide us. And third, the third prescription for unity is we need to read and obey God's commands on biblical living. The Bible gives us several clear and repeated instructions on how to behave, how we're supposed to live as Christians and how we're supposed to treat others. When we read and obey God's commands on biblical living, I guarantee you, it will be a game changer in this church, in your marriage, in your relationships, at your job, and wherever you may be. Unity will emerge as a result of doing what the Bible says. Listen to some of these scriptures. 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's start there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. The Apostle Peter says this. He tell, he's talking to us today. He says, be full of sympathy toward each other, loving one another with tender hearts and humble minds. I'm curious. Do you have a tender heart? In a humble mind today? He said, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate when people say unkind things about you. Instead, instead of retaliating, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God wants you to do, and God will bless you for it. For the scriptures say, if you want a happy life and good days, who in here would like to have a happy life and good days? I know I would. I'd like to have a happy life and good days. Well, the Bible tells us how to do that. The Bible tells us how to have a happy life and good days right here in 1 Peter chapter 3. This is what it says. Listen, if, if you want a happy life and good days, then, here's the answer, get ready for it, then keep your tongue from speaking evil and keep your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Work hard at living in peace with others. I think it's interesting. Even God knows it's not easy to live in peace with others. And he tells us to work hard at it. 
But he finishes this command by telling us that it's worth the hard work. Look at verse 12. It concludes, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. I don't know about you, but I want God's ears to be open to my prayers. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 tells us this. Paul says, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Instead, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. Your attitude should be the same that Jesus Christ had. Paul, church in Rome, he says, gives this instruction in Romans chapter 12. And he challenges the church. He says, live in harmony with each other. Don't try to act important, but enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Now, my mom and my wife are here, and they can tell you this is probably the hardest command in the Bible for me to obey. Don't think, I don't know it all. I have to admit that. And you don't either. So don't think that you do. Paul continues in verse 17. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. You know, maybe that's a typo. Because certainly Paul doesn't know or understand how, what that person did to you, how much that they, what they said or did, how much that hurt you, right? Paul doesn't, you know, a little revenge must be okay sometimes, right? Well, I don't believe it's a typo, but it's God's truth. And it's the way that God wants us to live. Then Romans says this, it says, do things in such a way that everyone you can see you are honorable. Do your part to live in peace with people you like. No, that's not it. I'm sorry. Do your part to live in peace with people who like you and treat you well. No, that's not what it says either. Okay. Do your part to live in peace with people who look like you do. That's still not right. Do your part to live in peace with people who vote like you. No, man, I'm really struggling today. I'm sorry about that. Do your part to live in peace when you feel like it. No, oh man, that's not it either. Okay, now let me try it again. Do your part to live in peace with everyone. 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 Do your part to live in peace with everyone as much as possible. That's it. That's what God wants us to do. And it's easier to live in peace with everyone when we follow the commands of Colossians chapter 3. Paul tells us how we can do that, how we can live in peace with everyone. He says, you must, you must make allowances for each other's faults. Because we all have them, right? We're all broken just in different ways. So we've got to make allowances for each other's faults so that we can live in peace with everyone. And we've got to forgive the person who offends us. He says, remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And the most important piece of clothing you must wear, Paul says, is love. He says, love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. You see, the captain and Tennille were right back in the 1970s when they sang it. Love will keep us together. That's for those of you over 50 in the room. All right. If you don't know it, Google it. Love will keep us together, Captain and Tennille. Paul continues in verse 15. He says, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts for as members of one body which is the church you are called to live in peace and to always be thankful and then paul wraps up all of these thoughts in verse 17 when he writes this and whatever you do or say whether in person face to face or on facebook or on twitter or in a work email i'm sure paul meant that when he wrote it 
Whatever you do or say, let it be as a representative of the Lord Jesus. All the while, giving thanks through Jesus to God the Father. As a Christian, you are always representing Jesus. Unity requires a commitment to Christ and his word above organizational loyalties. Unity requires a commitment to Christ and his word above personal opinions. Unity requires loving confrontation and creative problem solving, which is speaking the truth in love. Unity requires a willingness to accept one another in Christ despite our differences of opinion over disputable or minor matters. Unity is what we're called to now more than ever. I know we've heard that phrase a lot, but I really believe it applies today. Now more than ever, Christians and the church should be the ones leading the way in our church, in our communities, in our centers of activities, on social media, when it comes to promoting and protecting unity. And when we read and obey God's words of wisdom on how to live, speak, and act, then unity will become a reality. Finally, we need to hear the promise of unity. What's going to come as a result? Paul tells us the answer in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, under Christ's direction, the whole body, which is referring to the church, is fitted together perfectly. This means that the church is united and working as one. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So that the whole body, or the whole church, is healthy and growing and full of love. Healthy and growing and full of love. That's the promise of unity. And who doesn't want to be a part of a church, of a movement that's healthy and growing and full of love? And when we focus on and we work toward unity, then we'll experience the blessings God has promised to his church. Jesus prayed, my prayer for all of you is that you will be one. I echo that prayer of Jesus today for this church. I pray that East Point Christian Church will be called to unity, united in thought and purpose so that this church will be healthy and growing and full of love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for that prayer of Jesus. He could pray for a lot of things, but he prayed for unity. He prayed that his people, his disciples, would be one, just as he and the Father were one. And Father, that prayer still applies today. It's just as true today as it was then. Father, we need to be united in thought and purpose. Father, help us to be compelled by compassion. Help us to be called to unity. And when we stray off that path, Father, help us to draw and pull each other back in. That we will be collectively united under the cross of Christ in spite of our differences spite of our different ideas and thoughts and attitudes and opinions. Father, help us to be united because of Jesus and help us to do that so that others may know you and see that you are true. And Father, then we know that we will be healthy and growing 
and full of love. That's our prayer today. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.